most of us have heard this advice before. Be more creative. Drive innovation. Or everyone's favorite business cliche, let's just think outside the box. But how do you practically be more original and unique? Today, Adam Grant is on the show to teach us how to be a nonconformist. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 238. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to help you develop your leadership skills. And as you know, if you've listened to the show for a while, I'm a big believer in us getting access to the best thinkers out there. And there probably isn't a thinker that's known more, at least in the business world and organizations and leadership, than today's guest. And he is here to talk about how we can be more original. So much for us to say about that. And I'm really pleased to welcome Adam Grant to the show. Adam is one of the world's top business professors. He's the youngest person ever tenured at the Wharton School and is the highest rated teacher there running for the last four years. His research is often cited by Daniel Pink, Susan Cain, Malcolm Gladwell, and many other of the top thinkers out there that many of you know and have read before. He is the international bestseller of the book Give and Take, and is now the author of the new book Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World. Adam, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Thrilled to be here, Dave. Thanks for having me. Well, I guess we should probably start off with the obvious question of, when thinking about this new book you've just released, what is an original and and why is that important for us to know, especially in the organizational world? I think about an original as a nonconformist, somebody who speaks out and stands up. Basically, originals are important because they're the ones who drive creativity and change in the world. Right? Conformity is dangerous. Conformity exists when people look at an idea and say, I don't agree with this, but they follow it anyway because they'd rather fit in than stand out. And that's a great way to shut down dissent, weed out diversity of thought, and eliminate innovation from the world. And, you know, I think that we all have moments of originality. And my goal is to try to understand how we can become more original and how we can champion our new ideas and bring them to success, both as you know, individuals and also as leaders. If we want to create a, an organization that's built to last, then we need to create environments where other people can be original. I'm so glad you mentioned that because this is one of those things when I think about this topic that many leaders and organizations I've worked with over the years espouse a value in dissent and challenging the status quo and being innovative and you know all those cliches thinking outside the box and <laughs> and in in practice it seems like very few leaders and organizations really embrace those activities for their teams. And I'm wondering what, from your perspective, what leaders can do that starts to set a tone in a culture that helps organizations really embrace original thinking? Well, I think one of the best starting points for leaders is to show that they're receptive to new ideas and critical feedback. There are so many leaders who create a culture of, of yes men and women 
where the expectation is, as a leader, I come in in the morning and I say good morning and everyone else is supposed to say, great point. (laughs) And we we obviously need leaders to, to disrupt that. One of my favorite examples of this is Ray Dalio, who founded Bridgewater, the the wildly successful hedge fund that not only has beat the market pretty consistently for several decades, but (laughs) warned their clients in 2007 about an impending financial crisis. Mm. And one of the things that that Bridgewater holds as a principle is that no one has the right to have a critical opinion without speaking up about it. Imagine if more organizations took that seriously. It would be a very, very different world. Yeah. So Ray, Ray gets tested a few years ago. Um, this guy three levels below him named Jim sends an email saying, Ray, I give you a D minus for your performance in this meeting. Um, you rambled incoherently for well over an hour. This was a huge client, and I think you blew it. Now, I don't know a lot of people who would send that email to the billionaire founder of their company. Seriously? I was pretty sure Ray was going to fire him. But instead, Ray writes back and says, I'm sorry I let you down. He copies the management committee of Bridgewater and asks them to investigate whether this is a pattern so he can learn to improve. And then the co-CEO copies the email trail to the entire company so everyone can see how receptive to critical feedback Ray is. And that's the kind of thing I want to see more leaders doing. What did they do, Adam, that got to the point, other than, than espousing that as a value in the organization, which clearly they did, what was what was different about how they did that and the expectations they set and the behaviors of leaders that really changed their actions too, not just what was up on the wall? You know, it's funny. I think the starting point for a lot of the, the shift at Bridgewater was changing their performance evaluations. So you are actually assessed as part of whether you're going to receive a bonus and a promotion on whether you speak up with critical opinions and dissenting views. Mm. So you can have your, you know, as an extreme, you can have your paid doctor, you could get fired for not speaking your mind. And, you know, the way that they do that is they have a, they have a 360 system where at any time people can rate anyone on their ideas. And then you end up getting a believability score for how consistently accurate your views were in a a particular domain. So, you know, you're not just expected to speak up all the time, right? You're not supposed to go to people and say, you know, I I really think you would be more effective if you wore different shoes, (laughs) right? Because the, the steering question is, are you bringing useful ideas to the table? And I think evaluating people on whether they disagree constructively is a brilliant step, and I would be thrilled to see more organizations do it. One of the things I found really interesting reading through this book is a lot of the preconceived notions I know that I have, and I think probably a lot of other people have around originality, are not necessarily true. And you use a number of examples in the book about entrepreneurial leaders in particular. There's this bias I think a lot of us have to think about entrepreneurs as people who take all kinds of risks and uh, do whatever they can to be as, as change agents as possible, and, and, and especially the risk part, taking on all kinds of risks. And I thought it was interesting that you found through your research that entrepreneurs are a lot more, the ones that are very successful, we should say, are a lot more risk averse than the general population. I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. I was certainly surprised by that. I thought that successful entrepreneurs were daredevils, the people who you know would would basically be willing to try things that the rest of us think are insane. 
And yet, if you look at entrepreneurs, the successful ones are quite risk-averse. They're cautious, and they're constantly forming backup plans, which is why entrepreneurs who quit their day jobs to start a company, if you compare them to the ones who keep their day job and start a company as a hobby, that second group is 33% less likely to fail. And there are a couple of advantages of being risk-averse. One is that you actually do analysis to figure out whether your idea is any good before you take the leap. The second is that you don't put all your eggs in one basket, and that makes you much more likely to take critical feedback seriously, to pivot if you need to, as opposed to saying, well, I went all in on this, so I've got to make it work. And another advantage is it means you're not as pressured to rush forward with your ideas. Um, if you're somebody who loves taking risks, this moment you have an idea, you've got to go for it. Whereas, you know, when you look at some of the entrepreneurs who kept their day jobs, um, Sarah Blakely, two years selling fax machines before going forward with her prototype of Sphinx, being cautious and taking time to perfect the prototype and get a patent on it made her much more successful. Marcus Person, you know, building a video game and staying around as a programmer for nine months before he finally decides to devote all of his attention to Minecraft. That worked out pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> I can so relate to this because I was, as I was reading this section of the book, Adam, I was thinking back, I did that. I, I quit a job and tried to start a company and it was not successful at all. And, and part of the reason was exactly what you just said is you feel all this pressure to immediately perform and do things and try new things and take risks. And ultimately it wasn't successful at all. And it was a huge failure. And so I wish I'd read this book about 15 years ago, um, but I think that is that is sort of the like the the bias in a lot of our our thinking is that okay we have to we have to be all in we have to take all these big risks if we're doing new things and and really a lot of times we're better off testing and doing and having the fallback plans like you talk about. Yeah, I, you know, I I don't wish you had read this 15 years ago because we probably wouldn't be having this conversation today. <laughs> well, well, that's that's I, a I know, really uh, good point. I, I'm glad I'm glad you moved on. Well, that's a really good point because coaching for leaders has very much been a hobby and started off that way. And because it was approached that way, it became a lot more successful than my past business adventure. And so so it is really interesting when I think about this, how much that plays into the role of just in my own experience of thinking through originality and how nonconformity really plays a role in this. Tell me about procrastination because it's interesting that this comes up in the book. <laughs> Because <laughs> I wasn't expecting that at all. And you use some really interesting examples. And I saw an article you wrote recently on procrastination and how you're trying to do more of this. Could you tell us about your journey with that as you've started to started to write and do research for the book? Yeah, I'll tell you later. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, yeah, look, I, I'm a procrastinator. I'm the opposite of a procrastinator. That panic you feel a few hours before a deadline when you haven't done any work yet, I just tend to feel that months in advance. And I've always thought it was, you know, like a badge of honor to get things done early because anything worth doing is worth, worth finishing ahead of schedule. Uh, but then I, I had this unusually creative student named Jihei Shin who told me she had her best ideas when she was procrastinating. And I was like, that's cute. Where are the four papers you owe me? <laughs> <laughs> no, she, she was one of our most creative students. And we ended up doing a bunch of studies in some companies and we ran some, some experiments as well. And we consistently found that people who procrastinated sometimes were rated by their bosses as more creative than procrastinators like me who jumped into everything early and finished early. 
And they also had more original ideas when, when we actually tracked their ideas. And, you know, I wanted to know what happened to the chronic procrastinators. And she's like, I didn't, I don't know. They didn't fill out my surveys. <laughs> but, uh, no, they were, they were less creative too, because if you leave something to the very last minute, you have to rush to just you know, implement your first ideas or the easiest ideas, and you don't get to work through the most original ones. But procrastinating seems to have a couple of advantages. One is it allows time for incubation. You know, when, when I would just dive into something and finish it right away, I would be stuck in, you know, sort of the, the initial ideas that I came up with, which are usually the most conventional, right? That's why I had them first. And then it's also procrastination is pretty good for, you know, divergent thinking. It allows you, you know, when, you're, when you start thinking about a task, but you delay the completion of it, you give yourself time to, you know, make all those unexpected leaps and random connections that you wouldn't if you were just following a structured plan. So, yes, I have actually trained myself to procrastinate, and I am proud of it. Well, speaking of which, uh, one of the really interesting examples that you cite in your research is from Dr. Martin Luther King, and specifically the I Have a Dream speech. Tell us about that and how procrastination came into play there. Well, King's example was, was to me, shocking, because I mean, the, the I Have a Dream speech is arguably the, the greatest speech in American history. And, you know, I just assumed the amount of preparation that went into it must have been extraordinary. And it was in a certain sense. But he didn't start actively working on that speech until four days beforehand. And then it was the night before the speech, he pulled a near all-nighter, rewriting most of it from scratch. Uh, he was up at least till 3 a.m., possibly longer. And then the, the, he's sitting on stage the next day waiting for his turn to speak, and he's still scribbling notes and crossing out lines minutes before the speech. Now, why would he do that? Obviously, <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. was not lazy, and he cared deeply about this speech. It was the, the biggest one of his life. I think the reason he was willing to put it off until the last minute was because he wanted to keep himself open to the widest possible range of ideas. He didn't want to foreclose on one direction. And I think he knew intuitively that although you know, procrastinating is a vice for productivity, it's a virtue for creativity. And not only did he allow himself access to lots of, of different ideas, but then by the time he got up on stage, he did not have a script that was set in stone. And that gave him a lot more freedom to improvise, which is why 11 and a half minutes into the speech, he left the prepared remarks to utter four words that were not in the original script, but ultimately changed the course of history. And those words were, I have a dream. Uh, had he you know, finished the script months in advance and basically locked in on it, I don't know if that speech would have ever been remembered. It's such a miraculous story that the I have a dream wasn't even part of the, the remarks originally and, and how much he did improvise in the moment. And I, and I guess um, one of the things that I, I was wondering about and thinking about procrastination is your message is not just put off everything and wait till the very last minute by any means. How do we utilize procrastination in a real practical way when it makes sense to do that? And I'm wondering when you looked at the people you've you've researched, what is it how do people strike that balance of obviously doing the the preparation and the things that are important of being able to do the thinking and the incubation, but at the same time being able to bring in some of the benefits from procrastination that it may bring? You know, I, I was trying to sort through this puzzle, and a colleague of mine, an applied positive psychology expert, Reb Reboli, gave me the insight that I was looking for. 
he said, it, it seems like what's going on is that highly original people are quick to start but slow to finish. And the more I thought about that, the more convinced I became that he's right. Because, you know, on the one hand, you have all these people who are motivated to take initiative, right? They, they see the world differently from others, or they anticipate something that's going to take other people a while to realize. And, you know, they're excited to dig into it and bring their ideas into the world. But then, you know, I think the, the key to, to maintaining their originality is to not just rush forward and say, I've figured it all out. You know, Jeff Bezos uh, and Larry Page both told me that one of their rules for decision-making is waiting until the last possible minute to finalize a decision, just in case you learned something that you didn't know before. Mm. And, you know, that's such a contrast with the image of decisiveness that we often associate with great leaders. But they're decisive too, right? They've, they've, do, they've, they've taken an early dive into the problem. They have some initial ideas, but they're constantly doubting what they know to make sure they've, they've given themselves a real chance. Well, that's a good transition to thinking about how we can practically approach this from our own careers and experience too, from a, and particularly from a leadership standpoint. And for those of us who are not part of organizations that have the values that you've talked about in some of the examples, I'm wondering what your advice is for people who want to challenge the status quo, but might be fearful in doing so or might even work for an organization that doesn't necessarily articulate that as, as clearly or value that as clearly? Well, you know, I think there's some great advice in Switch by the Heath brothers, which is find the bright spots. There is almost always more variance within an organization than there is between organizations, right? So even if you, you're in an organization that has very little cultural sort of psychological safety that, you know, makes it hard to innovate and take risks, there will be pockets of people doing original things that have chosen to follow a different set of norms and values. And I think your, your first task is to seek those people out, right? Ask who is thinking differently, who is championing creativity or innovation around here. And then, you know, you want to learn from them. You want to pitch your ideas for, to them and, you know, see if you can build what, what Jane Dutton, uh, a great management professor calls a micro community of, you know, of people who, who may share some of your principles. And then, you know, I think the, the other thing that you do is you try to figure out whether you can take your original idea and make it feel more like it's an act of conformity to follow you, right? So one of the mistakes I see a lot of leaders make, and this happens with employees and managers, too, is they try to shove their values down other people's throats and say, look, you have to agree with my principles. No, you don't. What you want to do is you want to articulate your idea is helping other people fulfill values that they already hold. Right? So if, if you're pitching your idea to, to other people, if you can understand what are their identities, what do they take pride in, and show them how adopting your idea will actually allow them to be the person they want to be or think they are, then they will say, yeah, this makes a ton of sense, and I want to get behind that. Mm. So it's a distinction between, as a leader, of rather than trying to get everyone to adopt our values, is to really take the time to understand how those new ideas match the values of the people that we're leading, the values of the people in the organization, and, and help them align and be enthusiastically excited about jumping in versus just compliant. You said it much more clearly than I did, but I, I think that's exactly what I was trying to say, yes. Well, and th this actually leads to one of the questions that one of our Mastermind members had asked. She was thinking about it through the lens of give and take, Adam, but I think it really relates to 
just what we were just talking about and also also originals too. Uh, one of the things that she's been thinking through is how to maintain energy in an environment where there may be a lot of take. And one of the things that she, you know, was struggling with is, you know, the, the thought of running away from a situation. But obviously that's not always the best choice. And uh, I'm wondering, you know, thinking about your previous work with give and take and thinking about you know, through the framework of the values we just talked about, what are some of the other choices people have and if they find themselves in an environment like that? Well, if you look at people being dissatisfied with a job or any situation for that matter, social scientists have identified four different things you can do. They're, they're often called exit, voice, neglect, and persistence. So, you know, exit is you leave. Voice is you speak up and you try to change it. And then, you know, the, the other two options in some ways are less desirable because they don't alter the status quo. Neglect is saying, you know, I'll do the minimum office space style to, to try to not get fired. And then persistence is saying, you know, I, I'm going to keep my head down and you know, just try to do as well as I can, but not rock the boat. And I think these choices depend on, on three questions that are worth asking yourself. The first one is, do I have alternatives? If, if I think I have other options or, you know, there, there are other <laughs> jobs that I could find, for example, um, that might be, you know, sort of equally desirable or cover my bases well, then you know, it's worth looking at exit as a possibility. And then the other two questions are about control and commitment. Control being, can I change this if I try? And commitment being about, do I care enough about the organization or the people in it or the mission to try? And you know, I think you can, you can predict with some degree of accuracy what people will do if you know their answers to the question, those questions. So if you have alternatives, then you know, exit is going to be something you seriously consider unless you feel like you have both control and commitment. And then if you, you, know, if you have a sense of control and commitment, that's when you're going to speak up. The hard thing is what do you do when you're committed but you don't have control? And I think that's where a lot of people say, I'm just going to go to persistence, right? I care about this organization. I'm just going to try to deliver on my job description as well as I can. And yeah, I think that's, that's a reasonable step for a lot of people. I would love to see more people, though, say, well, let me figure out how I can earn the status to exercise more power. Mm. In other words, how can I make a big enough contribution to other people? How can I excel so much in my job that they actually want to hear what I have to say? that they're interested in, in changing based on my input. And you know, I think that's, I guess that's a question that, that more people could ask, and, but it's up to every individual how to answer it. Well, and leadership ultimately starts with ourselves. And so it's a, it's a great starting point of how can I affect change and bring value to the organization? And then, like you said, earn the trust to be able to then influence in a more substantial way. I love it. Adam, by every traditional measure, you've had a stellar career yourself. But you talk about in the book about your own j- journey with conformity. And I'm, I'm just curious, how has researching and writing this book changed your thinking on your own career? I think it's, it's changed my thinking in a couple ways. One is that you know, I've just realized I, I was a huge conformist. And that prevented me from sharing a lot of my more original ideas. How so were you a huge conformist? Because you're, you're doing all these great things out in the world, and I don't think most people would think of you that way. <laughs> well, they, they, then they've only seen the post-tenure me. <laughs> right? I, I was afraid to share most of my ideas, even in my own classroom. So you know, I spent years teaching as a professor, covering other people's research, and not saying a word about givers, takers, and matchers. 
because you know I thought people might think the ideas were absurd, right? That that generosity could you know not just sink your career but maybe accelerate it. Who would possibly believe that? Um, so I, I stayed quiet about those ideas and you know really only published research about them you know with a bunch of academics who you know I knew exactly what the norms and standards were of of how to do this research and how to convince that group of people, but. You know, a group of people in the real world? Yeah, not so much. I hesitate on that. Hmm. Uh, so that, that's one big example. There are lots of others. You know, the other thing that this, that writing this, this particular book has impressed upon me is that almost everyone wants to be more original. Right? We, we all have more ideas than we express for improving our circumstances and for changing you know, our surroundings for other people, not just ourselves. And it's gotten me thinking a lot more about how can I do that effectively? So, you know, working on this book has made me much more comfortable, for example, advocating for gender equality, which I previously, you know, said, as a man, it's not my place to do that. And certainly I can, I had never experienced all the injustices that women do, you know, in the working world. And so how can I speak for that? And, you know, writing, writing this book uh, has made me, given me a little bit more courage to say, well, you know, we need more men in this conversation. And, you know, I need to follow my own advice. Otherwise, I'm a hypocrite. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, I love it. I love, and I love how much you bring that into the book and talk about women in the workplace and and even the women suffrage movement too. There's just so many amazing examples, and and how that really speaks to leadership and originality. Very cool stuff. Oh, thank you, Dave. Well, I I felt like after you know reading the history of the suffrage movement, I could have written an entire book just about all the lessons we can learn from that about championing original ideas. But I figure there there are more books to come. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm glad to hear that. And you know, I just as I was reading through the book, I, I had the same feeling. I was like, wow, there's so much to be learned from some of these areas. And I, I really appreciate all your writing. I've read both the books, and they've informed a lot of my thinking on how I interact with the world. And I just really appreciate the courage you've brought and working through some of your own uh, conformity and fears, like we all have. I think that's it's a good lesson for all of us. Is that regardless of the success we've had, it's something we all struggle with. And so I, I really appreciate your willingness to talk with us about that and, and also the great work that you're doing. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll try to earn some of those kind words. I appreciate them though. Adam Grant is the author of the new book, Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World. Adam, thanks a ton for your time. Thank you. If I could run a list of the last 200 and so episodes of Coaching for Leaders guests and rank order them by <laughs> some measure on the success of people's careers, Adam Grant would be pretty close to the top of that list, certainly in the top five or 10, no doubt. And yet, did you hear him talk about navigating through fear? I'm I'm always interested in how, regardless of where we are in our careers at any given moment and any given time or season, how we're all struggling through with some aspect of fear, things that we don't feel confident on doing, that voice of criticism that uh, Tara Moore was telling us about just a few weeks ago on a previous episode. That's there for so many of us, and that's something we all need to zero in on and become more effective at working past. And that's one of the reasons I feel so strongly about getting leaders into a community with each other where they can support each other, 
lift each other up and work past those obstacles that all of us face in our careers. And that's a huge driving force for me behind the Coaching for Leaders Mastermind. You've heard me talking about the Mastermind over the last week or two. And as you know, applications for new seats are open now. And in addition to that, there are two free events coming up this week that I am hosting that I have not announced previously. So if you have been considering applying for membership in the Coaching for Leaders Mastermind, you're going to want to jump on this quickly. Now, before I tell you about the two free events coming up this week, for those of you who missed the prior episode, you should know that the Coaching for Leaders Mastermind membership is for members of the Coaching for Leaders community who would like more coaching that will encourage you to apply what you know, but you may not be doing actively, and to give you the opportunity to get development over time rather than just single interactions or events, which tends to be the default setting for most of us in our professional development. It gives you the perspective from experience that transcends organization or industry, and perhaps most importantly, Our mastermind groups are dedicated to you as a person beyond just your professional capacity or position or experience. The core of the membership is built around a twice-monthly live video conference with me and five other mastermind members, and we address professional situations where each member needs support, seeks insight and wisdom from fellow members, and commits to take action with the support of the group. And I facilitate all of those personally. Now, if this sounds intriguing to you, but you've been wondering exactly how does this work and how does that happen with the technology and the video, I am going to be hosting two events this week, and I encourage you to join one of them so you can get a sense of exactly what the mastermind experience is like in this event and a sense of how that works within the mastermind membership. And that's going to be coming up this Wednesday, March 30th, 2016, and also again a day later, Thursday, March 31st, 2016. And each of the events will be virtual. It's a virtual live mastermind session. They will be one hour and you're going to have the chance to talk with one to two other people in the Coaching for Leaders community on a current struggle you're facing and to get some objective suggestions on your next steps to resolve that struggle. And then in the second part of the session, I'll be asking for volunteers in both of those events to share what they're struggling with, with the entire group in that session. And we're going to work together to help everyone resolve some of those, or at least take the first step. And it will give you a clear sense of how the mastermind experience works and what you can expect as a member of the Coaching for Leaders Mastermind. Now, you'll need two things if you decide to join up for one of these free events. Uh, You'll need a device that has a camera and a speedy internet connection, and that is just about any device these days. If computer, laptop, smartphone, tablet, all fair game. If it's got a camera and you can get it on the internet, you should be in pretty good shape. And you'll also want to bring your answer to this question, what's something you're struggling with? We're all going to have a chance to have some conversation about that during the event. Now, here's when the events are going to be held. Uh, These are going to be North America times. You can do the time offset 
for wherever you are around the globe, and I've spaced them out, so most people globally will be able to attend one of them. The first one's going to be this coming Wednesday, March 30th, 2016, 7 p.m. Eastern New York time here in the States, or 4 p.m. Pacific, that's Los Angeles time. The second one, their identical events, will be on Thursday, March 31st. 12 p.m. Eastern here in the States, New York time, or 9 a.m. Pacific, Los Angeles time here in the States. Again, if you're somewhere else in the globe, you can do the time offset at timeanddate.com is a good place to check that out. To register for either free event for the hour, you're going to want to visit this address right now. Go to coachingforleaders.com slash try it. That's right. All one word. Coachingforleaders.com slash T-R-Y-I-T. Try it. It'll give you a chance to try out the mastermind interaction. Now, for the right experience and interaction, I'm limiting the number of seats available at that link. So if it sounds right to you, go over right now to coachingforleaders.com slash try it. Now, one final reminder, whether you attend one of these free interactive mastermind sessions this week or not, applications for the membership are due for those newly open mastermind seats on April 1st, 2016, this coming Friday. A number of you have already applied, but I don't have your application. I want to consider you as well if membership may be right for you. If that is something you'd like to check out with more details, go to coachingforleaders.com slash mastermind. That's where you can find all the information about membership. And of course, we'll say more about that at the end of both of the events this coming week. Now, if you're picking up this show for the first time and you're wondering, what's all this mastermind things going on? You're certainly welcome to join us for any of these events this week. Uh, But at the bare minimum, I'd suggest to get started. Hop on over to join my my weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday, and you'll also get a downloadable copy of my reader's guide that has a list of 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others and brief summaries from me on the value of each of those books. But even more importantly than that, you'll get my weekly leadership guide updates on Wednesdays. And to get access to that, just go over to Coaching for Leaders dot com slash subscribe and that's the way to get access if you are joining us for the first time and welcome if that's you the show airs every monday and i'm so glad that you've tuned in and speaking of glad thanks to be a blessing for the kind review on itunes what a great screen name i love it be a blessing. You were a blessing to me. Thanks for the kind review. I so appreciate it. Hey, if you've been listening to the show for a bit and have something to say about what you've gained from the show, I would be so grateful if you'd take a moment, uh, if you are an iTunes user, to go over to coachingforleaders.com iTunes and leave a rating or review for the show. That's huge on continuing to grow the community for all of us so we can all lead more effectively. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing a bunch of you live on Wednesday and Thursday. Take care.